Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Eric R. Scott, Associate Professor of History, Director of the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Kansas, and Editor of the Russian Review. We're discussing his book, Defectors, How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World. Defectors helps make sense of the bipolar order established in the 20th century and the people that made bold decisions to seek life under different regimes. Eric, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks, Caleb. Good to, good to be here. I'm a regular listener of New Books Network and uh, glad to be on the podcast. Of course. Uh, you know, we, we love we love having listeners on. So so that means that you get a sense of, uh, of what this is going to going to be like. Always good. Uh, and yeah, this, this was a book, you know, really fascinating book. I, I, I uh, I've done several books now on borderland topics, and I, I'm always fascinated by by borders because uh, they're just really fascinating sites to investigate. Uh, but before jumping into that into the topic in the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, I'm a, at the University of Kansas, as you mentioned. I've been here for a little over ten years, and before that, I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, this this project, uh, this book that we're going to talk about, really came out of my first project which was on the Georgian diaspora inside the Soviet Union. And so in many ways, I'm following uh, these processes of of migration that I first looked at inside the Soviet Union, uh, now looking at them across across Soviet borders and across across global borders. Uh, The book really is my effort to bring together a lot of different strands uh, of things that have been interesting to me uh, really since my my graduate school days. Uh, The whole subject of borders, as you mentioned, uh, the the multi-ethnic nature of the Soviet Union and the way the Soviet Union fits into global history in the second half of the 20th century. And for this particular book, was there a particular document, archive, moment where you decided that you wanted to write about this? It was actually something of an accident. I was doing research for my first book in Tbilisi, Georgia, in the KGB archives there which uh, had just gone through a big wave of declassification and opening to, to researchers. And 
in the process of looking at Georgian diaspora and its Soviet-wide influence and looking at illicit trade networks of the diaspora and looking at uh, some of the, the pathways traveled by members of, of the diaspora within the Soviet Union. Uh, one of the archivists mentioned uh, that I might be interested in looking at this hijacking case. Uh, this, this hijacking case actually involved uh, two Soviet Lithuanians uh, who were in Georgia, and uh, both of whom, uh, it was a father and son, but the father had been involved in illicit trading uh, before this. And the two of them launched the first successful hijacking of a Soviet airplane. And the more I read of this, of this criminal case file on the pair, the more interested I got and the more it really confounded my ideas about Cold War mobility. Uh, so this was a case in which these two people presented themselves as defectors uh, to a global audience, but were basically stuck in limbo in Turkey for almost a decade uh, because in the process of hijacking, there was, there was, a, there was the stewardess, uh, the flight attendant uh, on the airplane was killed. And they were basically caught in this limbo where no one really wanted to accept them as, as refugees, but no one wanted to let them go back to the Soviet Union to face trial. And they began this, this worldwide odyssey that uh, took them from a displaced persons camp in Turkey uh, to a sit-in protest at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara to this global itinerary of trying to find asylum in the Vatican City then in Venezuela and ultimately in the United States. And there's a whole subsequent story I interviewed, uh, ended up interviewing the son. Uh, there's a whole after story to their odyssey that I talk about in my book. I don't want to give away too many details here, but this, this case really showed to me how global this story of defection was and how in many ways different it was than what I expected. I grew up uh, in the eighties and so I, had heard about defection you know this was this was a theme in a lot of movies at the time from the semi the very serious portrayal in white knights that starred real life defector mikhail barishnikov to a more lighthearted portrayal in moscow on the hudson with robin williams defecting to a department store uh and i knew these stories i knew they were there uh, i knew that this was this was really important the way the cold war world was framed as a contest between captivity and freedom. But it was really in getting into the details of this KGB case that I really came to see that there was an interesting story to be told here, uh, not just about perceptions of this, this bipolar uh, world, but also about the ways in which it was navigated by people like, like these hijackers, and also the ways in which this uh, whole idea of defection, which I think is really linked to the criminalization of exit, how this played out in a, in a global scale and how uh, the U.S. in particular played a really important role in encouraging, encouraging exit, uh, encouraging escape, uh, but then not always knowing what to do with those who, who actually managed to, to flee. So what would you say is, is, is a sort of a definition of defector, uh, you know, putting a defector as, you know, someone who qualifies as one as opposed to just simply being a migrant or a refugee? Yeah, so these terms are really important, and they're also highly disputed. Um, but I do spend a good a deal of time talking about this and and actually looking at the whole history of the term defection. Which, if you if you chart it out, uh, this term really proliferates widely in the Cold War period, beginning in the late '40s, and then dramatically drops at the end of the Cold War. And now it's really only used to talk about people 
perhaps fleeing North Korea or other holdover states that that do do limit exit. Um, so I I really think of defectors as people who flee and people who flee uh, in cases where their their exit is is criminalized and uh, and people whose flight is viewed uh, through an ideological lens as an ideological choice. Now, uh, all the people I look at. Um, could also be thought of as refugees, and I argue that that this whole concept of def defection really underpins the refugee refugee regime that emerges in the Cold War, uh, that really emphasizes this notion of political choice, and uh, and is really also not equipped to handle uh, the the free movement of people. Um, you know, a lot of the discussions that I look at around both the refugee regime and defection in particular talk about the fact that you know this was really set up to encourage exit knowing that there would not be a mass influx of people um, and so there's a there's a lot of different things here um, and there's a lot of disputes over who then is a defector uh, if it hinges on this ideological choice uh, many migrants will claim to be defectors and will represent themselves this way they will emphasize a political choice um, they will emphasize this ideological process that they went through often before their defection. They, they essentially ideologically and psychologically uh, talk about a break with, with the socialist uh, state that they left, essentially crossing, crossing mental borders first, preceding the, the flight, uh, the physical flight from these countries. Um, but it really is, is a, a complex process in sort of teasing apart these stories and and one of the things that's particularly interesting about defection, there was, in fact, a U.S. definition when the U.S. decided to encourage defection, particularly from the Soviet Union, as a matter of policy in the early 1950s, um, which was a policy essentially they were forced into articulating because there had been several earlier cases of flight. That they, they weren't quite sure what to do with and the U.S. immigration system was not set up to handle these people. And actually, U.S. immigration system was never really fully looked at in the context of defection. It was really more about pushing against the Soviet migration system. But there was, there was, a, there was a definition. It was actually classified. And in fact, some details of this are still classified, but it was about uh, these particular refugees or migrants from socialist states who could be used for two purposes. The first would be of intelligence value, uh, which presumably would be defined by the CIA or the FBI or a variety of, 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 of members of what the U.S. calls its intelligence community. Uh, but the second part was about psychological exploitation. So how could the, the stories of defectors be used to advance Cold War aims? And it was in the second category that migrants who the U.S. would not have wanted as defectors uh, were essentially able to to write themselves into the defective program by casting their escape in a particularly dramatic fashion. And and this this happened again and again and again and again. The hijackers are perhaps an extreme case of, of this, but there were a number of people I look at in my book, people who would jump ship uh, when Soviet ships were docked in foreign harbors or leapt from Soviet diplomatic missions uh, that showed up at the US's doorstep. Uh, or showed up inside U.S. borders and really were able to get the protections of the defective program, even though the U.S. was not able to select them. Uh, the U.S. ideally wanted to 
select who they were going to bring, uh, screen them ahead of time, and then bring them into the U.S. or in most cases, keep them outside the U.S., but keep them within within the U.S. orbit. Uh, but in many cases, defectors really were able to force their hand and and try to navigate this through to to reach uh, reach the U.S. Uh, and or or other other countries outside the Soviet Union. And was there a comparable term or comparable notion of defection uh, in the Soviet Union? Obviously, this you know the definition that you say would would, would have been a, a U.S. Uh, English term terminology. Was was there a Russian word as well? There's a Russian word, um, and and this word actually exists in a num- number of other languages. So pitybishik would be the most the closest Russian translation about someone who who runs across a border. Um, and this this you can find in, in a number of other languages. Uh, I, I sketch out a brief etymology of these terms in in in, in my introduction. Uh, and this term also too links physical flight with ideological choice. Uh, the other term that that the Soviet Union often used was nevazrashenets uh, or non-returner, which is a very interesting way of looking at this from a Soviet perspective, in the sense that these were people who who had uh, traveled abroad. Uh, these were often people who had been cleared for travel abroad and then fled while abroad uh, and had not yet returned. And so this is really showing the Soviet perspective of of trying to 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 control the mobility of its citizens globally and trying to essentially channel or or constrain uh, their movement. And one of the things that really emerges from the book is that defection is really happening at the intersection of two, two global mobility regimes that are set up after World War II, uh, with the U.S. and the Soviet Union both essentially acting as as global empires, you know, reaching beyond their borders to to control and channel and guide and manage these global flows of people. And so the U.S. side is really about selective selective encouragement of departure and routing people through third countries and supporting international asylum system uh, to hopefully keep mostly people outside the U.S. Uh, because there is there, there are constant concerns inside the U.S. with being overwhelmed with a large number of defectors. Uh, and then the Soviet system, which is very much engaging these global flows. And this is really you know, fitting in with a lot of a lot of recent work that's being that's been done about the Soviet Union's engagement with globalization. But at the same time, really trying to set the terms of globalization so that it, it retains control of, of the mobility of its citizens. And and one of the things that really comes through in the book is that while defection really does establish the idea of a, of a captive East versus a free West uh, and and does so, I think, in enduring ways, um, the Soviet system of managing restraining mobility uh, is actually really compatible with 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 global capitalism and with 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 globalization more generally. Uh, you begin the story the book with a story of Viktor Oreshkov. And th- this is a really a fascinating story because he's a person that, that that went back and forth. But I was wondering if, if you could just share a little bit about who he was just to, um, you know, add a face to what one of these defectors might have been like. Uh, and and just why why him? Why did his story stick out to you as so, as so interesting? I think one of the things that really struck me about Oreshkov uh, was how ordinary a person he was in, in many ways. Uh, I think many people have an idea of defectors uh, being ballet dancers or you know, KGB officers or these these high-ranking officials, and there were indeed many cases like this. 
But I think Ereshkov's case is interesting because here is a really, by all accounts, a rather ordinary young man. Um, he is a Soviet sailor in his 20s. Um, Soviet sailors uh, were one of the groups that could travel abroad um, with, you know, they were, they were still screened, but because the Soviet state needed people to, to staff its ships, uh, particularly as it, as it really expanded in global shipping in the 1950s when the story uh, begins, um, they really, you know, sailing on, on Soviet merchant ships was a way that, that um, lower class Soviets could, could hope to travel abroad. And ships were, were, were rather controlled spaces, right, in, in some ways. Um, they would travel on pre-planned itineraries. Uh, the captain had a good deal of latitude over over uh, what happened on the ship. There were political officers often on the ship um, watching people. Um, but this was still still, you know, the seas, and there was all kinds of unscripted things that came up, as well as you know, large groups of people um, from different backgrounds who were now on these ships, you know, having opportunities they never never would have before. And so Reshkov. Um, was returning back um, to the Soviet Union um, after after visiting several socialist states with this merchant vessel and sailing through the Bosporus Straits that that, that divide Istanbul and uh, and jumps from the ship and swims to shore uh, without any identity documents uh, without anyone really sure about who he is and um, and soon is portrayed as this. This, this ideological defector who swam to freedom. This is a real trope. You know, these defectors go swim to freedom. They leap to freedom. Uh, they fly to freedom. And so he's, he's Viktor Reshkov swims to freedom uh, and sort of seems then to conform with our idea of defection. Although again, it's a little different because this is someone who is a total unknown to, to American intelligence or to the American public, but becomes this person who's grabbing headlines because of, because of this swim to freedom. However, he, he does, as you mentioned, then seek to return to the Soviet Union almost uh, a decade or more later and, uh, and makes it actually back to the Soviet Union after a, after a dramatic journey, um, is actually, you know, goes through a, a, lengthy, a lengthy interrogation process and faces all sorts of penalties for, for fleeing, but, but manages to reintegrate into Soviet society and then seeks to flee again, uh, shows up at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, and and seeks to to go back to the U.S. And what's really interesting then about this this longer term story of Ereshkov is is this is not a one way movement but a back and forth movement. But this is someone who's trying to do something that you know people usually do with relative ease today. Although right now with Russia, it's and, and having launched a full scale invasion of Ukraine and there being various travel barriers, it's harder to imagine. But people do move back and forth between these countries with relative ease. Um, and and his certain so you have this back and forth movement this this not just a, a one way movement but a, a, a circular movement and also towards the end of this um, these are not two states that are vying to bring this person in um, these are two states that really don't want anything further to do with this person uh, because he is not serving either side the Soviets don't necessarily want to hold on to him the Americans uh, when he's seeking to go back to the U S actually don't want to take him back, but they have a debate about whether he is a U.S. citizen and whether they have obligations here and ultimately do, do decide to take him back. So it really destabilizes a lot of these narratives and, and emphasizes some, some, some degree of individual agency here, or, or, although all these defectors really played 
a dangerous and risky game. Uh, it was dangerous because of the ways in which they fled, but also the circumstances that they encountered uh, when they ended up where they did, uh, where they did not always have protections, where they did not always uh, have the uh, means to support themselves. Um, so the Ereshkov case really is is one to sort of look at a lot of the tensions uh, and, and, and in my story and the ways in which this closer look at defection uh, really uh, helps us rethink uh, the the nature of the Cold War and and these global mobility systems that emerge from there. And I should also mention too that one of the more amusing things that came forward in the story is that that at least according to the Soviet sources I looked at, his original motivation for fleeing uh, was not some ideological choice, but that he had gotten to an argument with the ship's captain uh, because Oreshkov was keeping a dog on the ship illegally. Uh, somehow, somehow sneaking it about the ship, and so it's really you know this 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 sort of mundane thing that leads to a really dramatic uh, global journey that goes on for several decades. Another case that you look at of someone that that was uh, that's pr- pretty notable is Viktor Kravchenko. Uh, so, so what what is his story, and how does his defection differ from from Oreshkov's? So Kravchenko is interesting because of when he defects. Uh, he defects right towards the end of the Second World War. And this is at a time when the U.S. and the Soviet Union are still uh, formally allies and still have a good deal of, of back and forth relations, both militarily, uh, commercially. Uh, and Kravchenko is, is a Soviet uh, 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 posted to, to Washington uh, and flees from Washington, wartime Washington, D.C., um, to to New York, where he he essentially turns himself into the FBI and the New York Times, who who begin to write about him. And th- because this is such an in- uh, an early story, it's really interesting to see the fact that the U.S. media really doesn't know what to do with him. Um, he's initially described as a deserter. The Soviets also describe him as a deserter, uh, and then begin to refashion some elements of his tale into a more coherent story of defection where he's fleeing in the middle of the night uh, from, from Washington's Union Station to, to New York. And he talks about fleeing. He sees a Red Army soldier in, in the, the, the terminal at, at Union Station in Washington, D.C. And, and lowers his hat and sneaks away. And this is actually kind of interesting anecdote because it reveals that actually yes there were there were soviet soldiers uh you know in in washington at this time with with official official missions uh and i think the 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 what happens next is really important kravchenko's memoir which is called i chose freedom uh which uh is partly based on his memoirs and partly partly essentially ghostwritten uh really sort of forges this defector narrative and it's about it's about disillusionment uh, with with the, the Stalinist system in particular. Uh, it's about this sense of ideological break, uh, an almost religious-like conversion uh, or a religious rejection, first of all, of, of, of Bolshevism and a, uh, an embrace with, of Western ideas of, of freedom and freedom of movement in particular. And uh, the Soviets really pushed back on this uh, in a very serious way. And, 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 and they, they do so through, through a group of French communists uh, who, through their paper, sue Kravchenko for libel against the Soviet state. And the Soviet government makes what, in retrospect, 
is a rather big mistake. And they they actually admit this later on in, in, in internal conversations in Moscow, but they decide to take part in this great trial against Kravchenko in a Paris courtroom in what was called the trial of the century. And they 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 attack his his description of the Soviet Union, and they they bring in all these high-ranking Soviet officials to talk about how this is libelous and untrue and slander. And Kravchenko, uh, acting in coordination with the U.S. State Department, brings in a number of displaced persons, uh, so Soviet Soviets who had fled uh, the Nazi invasion, ended up in 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 Europe were. Um, you know, a, a very large population, but brings them in essentially as key witnesses to talk about the Soviet Union. And so he essentially helps forge the, the narrow defection and also elevates these Soviet migrants into the position of, of truth tellers uh, about what the Soviet Union was, was like, about what life in the Soviet Union was like. And this is, you know, this, this takes place not just in the courtroom. Uh, it's really these migrant stories that are used by early Sovietologists. Um, and 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 embraced in a much more simplified form uh, by journalists uh, who are really invested in 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 seeing um, the socialist camp as a place of of captivity and really championing um, this idea of a free West. Now these are these are these are pre-existing ideas. Tara Zara in, in her great book uh, uh, looks at and her work looks at how. In many ways, this idea prefigured the the Iron Curtain, and certainly there's all kinds of wartime tensions that were at play. Uh, but this really cements this idea, and it becomes it becomes such a such a such a popular idea. And so you have this real transformation, in the say about five years from U.S. media not sure how to cover these defectors to this 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 real narrative of defection that is not only familiar to the U.S. but becomes very well known among Soviet migrants. Uh, because essentially it's beamed back to them uh, through radio liberation, uh, through these these CIA-funded radio broadcasts that are that are projecting this back into the Soviet Union, telling these stories of defection to Soviet citizens, who then essentially retell these stories uh, if they manage to flee abroad. And so, you know, I really agree with people like like historian uh, Melissa Feinberg, who really talk about the the power of storytelling. Uh, in, in the Cold War, uh, and and many of these stories are are true, uh, but there is a sense of of how they should be framed and how they should be described, and this is this is how you navigate this this international architecture of migration uh, at a time when it was it was rather hard to move around. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. What were the Soviet borderlands like? How heavily were they policed? And, you know, what level of difficulty was defection compared to, let's say, defection from North Korea today? Well, the Soviet Union's borders obviously were were enormous in length. Um, the world's largest land borders. Uh, then you have maritime borders. Uh, you have you have all kinds of areas that are that are very lightly guarded. Um, for example, the border with Finland, which was relatively uh, you know was was long and and in extreme the far north and very hard to guard. Um, but you know the Soviet Union also relied on on a, several networks of control right to to keep people in. So. They had physical borders. They had agreements with other socialist states to coordinate migration policy. Uh, and then they had agreements with capitalist states like Finland, which which had to return people uh, who fled uh, to Finland. And this was this was part of the so-called Finlandization, right? This control of mobility. Uh, but there were sections of the border where there was extremely tight efforts at control. And the one I really focus on um, is the one where where most defections occurred in 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 the cold war uh the, the, at least in terms of a land border which is along the soviet turkish border because turkey was a nato member and migrants who made it there had good chances of not being returned although they sometimes were uh but but most of them who made it there were not returned uh and so there were these restricted or, or forbidden border zones and one of them is on the, the border between the soviet union and turkey uh, in in um, in Georgia, and um, this is a particularly interesting case of, of essentially a, a a whole area, several kilometers wide, where where only local residents and border guards really were, were supposed to be. And so there were watchtowers, there were fences, there were guard dogs, there were document checks. Um, there was all kinds of different ways of screening people. Um, the locals were 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 paid um, several hundred rubles for app- apprehending any any defectors, uh, and many of them were were really outsiders. Were seen as outsiders anyway uh, uh, when they showed up there. Um, so this was a rather serious effort, and this you know this was I think kind of lines up up with what we imagine when we think about a a, a Cold War border. But what's interesting is that. Uh, well, there's several things that are interesting about this. One is that um, people still made it through this this area. Um, there were still people who made it through. So even this this tightly controlled borderland was still uh, not impermeable. Uh, but also that this coincided with with the port city of Batumi, um, just just a few a few miles to the north, uh, which was a bustling international trade center. And so uh, it wasn't just about these enforced closures, it was also about regulating openings. And so by looking at the KGB's uh, files on border control, the KGB was responsible for, for border enforcement. 
and looking at this, not just in Georgia, but also I, I spent a good deal of time in, in Kyiv, uh, where the whole Western border district of the Soviet Union was run from. Uh, there was a lot going on to keep the Soviet Union open to international trade, international visitors, uh, international ships, uh, while maintaining control on the exit of Soviet citizens. And this was done in, in Batumi, which again is by this closed borderland, very close, but relatively open uh, through a lot of systems of surveillance. Uh, so there was there were informant networks, uh, there were there were KGB officers there. Um, there were there were uh, a good deal of uh, of efforts to to patrol clubs, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, hotels um, to get all these reports on on who's saying what. And in particular, uh, starting from the late fifties and onward, uh, to to undertake what they described as prophylactic policing. Um, so to to essentially stop defection before it occurred. So if the KGB caught wind of someone uh, talking about how they wanted to flee abroad, or even someone who was maybe talking about how much better things were uh, abroad, or how they you know could get get better things or make a higher salary working in another country, uh, the KGB would pay them a visit, and they would evaluate how likely it would be that they would defect. They would try to talk them out of it. And sometimes they would actually turn them into informants uh, by pressuring them. And so this is this is a really an interesting mixture of 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 both enclosure and these controlled openings. Um, and and I will say despite all of this, these port cities are still kind of unruly. Um, there's still a lot of stuff going on in these stories. Uh, a lot of unscripted encounters are happening. But they are generally, you know, these systems were generally effective at keeping people in. There's only really, uh, you know, compared to the the millions of people involved um, in moving through these these port cities, you know, there's there's only a handful of people who managed to flee. Uh, foreign ships became very reluctant to take in Soviet citizens because they could face repercussions, um, or they would lose access to the port. So they 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 often turn people over. And um, and any kind of large scale smuggling networks that you know that today we see you know as being a big part of of how migration happens. There are these networks of people that that move people uh, across borders where they couldn't otherwise go. There's there's really little evidence I found of any large scale operations. And so uh, while it does look kind of rickety when you look at it up close, it's 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 still rather effective at, at doing what it's designed to do. What role did embassies play? Uh, in the world of defection, um, it, the embassies are, are are sort of an interesting site because you know they're they're uh, uh, you know a location or, or sort of a sovereign location with, within other borders. So so what role did they play for defectors? Yeah, so they they played several roles. Uh, the first was as places of flight. So there were a number of Soviets who fled from embassies, fled from diplomatic postings, uh, fled what were called by the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Soviet colonies. So not just embassies, but these residences and compounds and schools that the Soviet Union set up around the world uh, and ran around the world. Uh, there were also places of refuge. And so in particular, um, I look at people who fled to Western embassies and tried to claim 
asylum there. Um, and then they were they were also really important in terms of monitoring monitoring migrants uh, because they were used by both the Soviet Union and the United States to track the global movement of migrants, uh, and, and in many cases far beyond the socialist or the capitalist camp, and particularly in in the post colonial world. Uh, and so, one of the things that really is is interesting in, in sort of focusing on these 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 cases of defection involving embassies is that these defectors really push beyond established norms of of embassy sovereignty of embassy borders. So there's there's not when the Cold War begins a really clear international legal framework for establishing what the borders of embassies are or what rights migrants have in embassies or what protections embassies can claim in, in a foreign country. And it's really these cases of defection that prod both the U.S. and the Soviet Union to 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 push forward a more comprehensive framework uh, for governing embassies and for really protecting their interests. And one of the things that really is 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 fascinating, and this emerges uh, particularly in the second half of my book, where I, I look more at these these border spaces far beyond the Soviet Union in embassies on foreign ships uh, and in airplanes, is that. Uh, while the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are competing for defectors and in some cases using their embassies to shelter people fleeing, uh, they also don't want a lot of people showing up unannounced at their embassies. And they, they, they don't want these embassies to turn into unregulated spaces of migration. And so even as they're using their embassies to, to shelter particular migrants, they ultimately end up cooperating and working together to to really draw embassy borders uh, in a way that suits their interests and does not suit the interests of migrants. And so I, I talk about this essentially as a tacit form of collusion between the superpowers who who really decide um, in the face of, of, of fears about unrestrained mig- migration, and particularly because this is unfolding against the backdrop of decolonization in the context of the proliferation of all sorts of new embassies around the world and, and new pressures of global migration emerging in the 1950s and 1960s. They really work together in some pretty, pretty open ways to forge an international legal framework that really suits their interests and also uh, prevents embassies from, from becoming a significant place of, of widespread uh, refuge seeking. And so in particular, when, they, when they're meeting at first through the International Law Commission of, of the United Nations, which has both U.S. and Soviet counterparts, and then in the prelude to the Vienna Convention of 1961, which is still the enduring framework regulating uh, embassies uh, worldwide, um, they really hash out and iron out between the two of them a framework that really suits, suits their interests and ultimately suits the interests of established states. And so this framework essentially pushes back against many states, including those in Latin America, that want to see diplomatic asylum as a recognized right. Uh, it really protects the the inviolability of of embassies in many cases, and in particular, it really carves out some some exceptions for established states to kind of make their own rules in settings. So rather than having a, an even playing field 
where these diplomatic rules would really be spelled out. There's all kinds of carve outs for uh, the U.S. prerogatives, Soviet prerogatives, and also the prerogatives of, of some established states, particularly waning European empires that really want to shore up, uh, shore up their embassies against uh, what they see as a potential for, for widespread migration from the post-colonial world. And so you have East and West essentially teaming up uh, against, against the global South and ultimately co-opting of a number of post-colonial states who also don't want to see uh, their migrants fleeing abroad. And so this is a really interesting, interesting thing. And this was something that was totally un unexpected when I began researching this book. I assumed that competition would be, really be the enduring theme, uh, competition for migrants uh, as the enduring theme of the book. And, and what I see around embassies and a number of other cases I look at is really this collusion uh, to, to really build this, this, this international infrastructure of migration that, that in many ways suits, suits Soviet needs and allows for globalization, but with, uh, with Soviet and American prerogatives given, given priority. When we look at today and just the legacy of the Soviet Union um, and of the world that was in part built to uh, you know, encourage defectors or prevent defectors, uh, are, are there any, uh, you know, today legacies that uh, that, that you think are, are, are pretty prominent or, or uh, things that, that listeners can sort of take away? Well, I think defection, although it really vanished as a as a dominant way of thinking about migration af after the Cold War, uh, is still really uh, essential in the ways that our international refugee system is set up. So it's really, it, it's logic underpins this international refugee system. Uh, you have a world today in which people are largely free to leave. Uh, there's, there's, there's very few cases of exit restrictions uh, out there today. I mean, there are some, some, some cases we could look at and um, some, some cases that are, are concerning, but, but by and large, people are far freer to leave today than they were in the Cold War. Uh, but the flip side of this is that they have far fewer places to go. Um, so the refugee system was really set up to manage small numbers of people, uh, primarily targeting the, the socialist world. Um, it's now that framework, which, which was really forged in 1951 with the Refugee Convention, is now managing a global refugee population that is moving around for a number of different reasons. Um, and... Those reasons are not always explicitly ideological and political or not ideological and political in the way that people expect them to be. Um, and I should say that this is this is not something new. Uh, many of the, the defectors I looked at had very mixed motivations. But our system today is really not set up to deal with people displaced by economic devastation, uh, people fleeing environmental catastrophe. And this is a legacy, really, of a, of a Cold War system that was prioritizing certain types of migrants. And so what you really see with the end of the Cold War is not just the the, the freedom to 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 travel more broadly or to to leave one's country, but really a, a huge rise in statelessness as people people leave but don't really have a have a clear place uh, to go. And so I think this is really you know where we see the broader the broader um, 
consequences of 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 this system. Um, and I'll also say too that I think you know we're still living with this particular system of globalization that emerged in the Cold War. Uh, and I think for a long time we saw the the Berlin Wall come down. Uh, we saw new opportunities for travel, and we really thought that globalization was about the opening of borders. Uh, but it's been become, I think, increasingly clear that the globalization that we live with today uh, is about regulated openings. And so many things can travel extremely freely, capital, ideas, certain forms of culture. Uh, but people are largely restrained in certain ways. And, and, and the way people move about this world um, is really variegated. I mean, there's lots of different experiences people have depending on what passport they have um, and uh, where they're going and, and where they're coming from. And, uh, and this is really baked into the system of globalization uh, that was forged in the Cold War and whose architects uh, were not only the United States, uh, but also the Soviet Union and and the system really relies on this these you know these the system of international law that was forged through through these disputes over borders that that defectors really brought uh, to the world's attention. Yeah, that, that that's a that's a really fascinating conclusion, um, and and I think also very you know interesting perspective that you've taken just to to what globalization is and how it uh, how it operates today. Um, is there is there any other you know, work that you're interested in seeing seeing be done on, on this topic of defectors or or other works out there that you think, um, you know, people might consider uh, exploring? I think there's so much more to be done to understand migrants. Uh, one thing that really, you know, continually, that I continually encountered in doing this research was how hard it was to get at migrant voices. And I really, you know, was was pretty dogged in 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 trying to follow them wherever I could. So, you know, the, I went to uh, over twenty different archives in five different countries. I tried to follow defectors as much as I could across across state borders and across across archives. I also worked a lot with with emigre uh, collections, with with less formal archives. I did interviews. I read all the memoirs. Uh, and I still, at the end of the day, found that it was really hard to know uh, who these people were and what motivated them. And I think in some ways, the defectors who were successful uh, were those who managed to navigate this and then essentially go on and have, have a private life away from, from archival scrutiny. And so I think there's a lot more to be done to, to follow this movement of people. Um, there's a lot more to be done to uh, look at how internal migration in the Soviet Union was connected to external migration. Some of the people I'm looking at uh, in, in defectors had really interesting journeys inside the Soviet Union before they ended up uh, fleeing abroad. Uh, and I think there's a lot more that needs to be done to to connect Russia and Soviet history to to global history more generally. And so I'm really excited to see some of the new work that's coming out. I also think that historians have have rediscovered borders more generally, and I think we uh, we tended to downplay their significance for a long time, particularly in our field of of Russian and Soviet history, because we wanted to uh, to not be locked in this Cold War framework. And I'm not saying we need to go back to this, but we do need to take uh, borders seriously as 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 a factor in the limiting of 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 human movement in particular, and and in, in shaping. 
societies in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, and so I think there's a lot more work being done here. I think, you know, historians are, are really, you know, should look at some of the work being done in other fields. I read a lot of sociology, uh, political theory uh, that really helped shape the way I thought about borders. Uh, and there are all kinds of different borders. There's there's linguistic borders, ideological borders, political borders. But I think there's a lot more to be done in that area. And so I, I definitely do not see this as the last word. Um, there's also a lot of cases of defection that I, I simply didn't have uh, the page count to 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 look at, and so I really focus on on some key cases and 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 key settings where defection happened. So each chapter looks at a particular border setting uh, at a time when that setting really came to the fore. Uh, but there's a many many more cases to look at, and so I think there's this is a really rich topic uh, yeah. that I hope people will explore further. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, we uh, we only discussed a couple of the cases, but but there are definitely uh, many more that you talk about in the book, and and I definitely recommend that that readers check it out just just to hear these these stories because these are just unbelievably fascinating profiles of people that you know really went through so much uh, in order to to just change their lives uh, and and move to different places. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you. The book is Defectors, How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World from Oxford University Press. All right. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks. I enjoyed talking with you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.